Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Rock Fellowship. We're glad you could join us for um, our first uh, series intro in a really, really long time. If you've been following us, if you've been a part of our church for a while, you know, in general, our church likes to operate through a series format where we have one set topic or one set theme, and we spend anywhere from two to six or seven weeks on that theme. And we've had so many of these in the past um, the existence of our church. But really, over the past few weeks, we've had just a string of standalone or kind of special weekends. If you were in here last week, uh, last week we were not here um, in this building. We we're out on the coast um, at our annual Cannon Beach retreat, and we had a communion, and it's kind of like, like a one-off series from the rest. And the weekend before that, we had our famous our Rock Spring musical, The Rock Slingers, greatest hit, where we had a recap on the story of David and Goliath. And we, had, we just had a slew of um, standalone messages where I spoke and and Ernie spoke, and Ken spoke. But I'm excited that this week we're introducing a brand new series at church. And the name of that series is How to Study the Bible. How to Study the Bible. And in the past, we've had our fair share of kind of subtle, kind of like creative, wordy series titles, such as um, Protect This Mess, or The Year of Jesus, or Before You Go. But this would fall under the the category of our series titles that are a little bit more straightforward, um, like the book of Esther, or how to family. And again, I realize that when I say that the name of our series, and for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about how to study the Bible, I realize that there's probably a a mixed reaction, depending on who you are, whether you're watching online in Arizona, or sometime in the future listening to our podcast, or sitting here um, in Portland today. And I realize that, that depending on where you're at right now, you may be really excited like, yes, this is, I've been waiting for this. I really need to learn. I would love to get deeper into the Word. Really excited about this series. Or you're like, okay, how long is this series going to last? And I don't know, when is the next series coming around? And again, I think it's perfect that we have a, a good number of our college students back for the summer. And again, a lot of times I feel like, for me personally as a student, um, my peak, the peak of my spiritual life was finals week. And during finals week, when I had all the tests and the projects and the papers that I procrastinated on, I clung to the feet of Jesus. And I said, Jesus, I need you. Every moment I need you here now, the the cry, let me get through finals week. And the minute finals week ended and I got the grades that I wanted, the first few months of summer for me were like all-time spiritual lows. We're like, I didn't really need Jesus anymore. I was chilling at home. I can do whatever I wanted. So hopefully um, for the college students or anyone that's starting break right now, this could be a perfect series for you to try to restart your spiritual walk um, back at home. But I realize, again, that there's probably a spectrum of people in this room um, when I talk about the concept of studying the Bible. On one hand, we have people that are like, you hear this topic and you hear the title of the series, like how to study the Bible, and you're like, yes, I know this. I know how to study the Bible. I've been studying the Bible for a really long time. I've read the Bible so many times cover to cover. This is my favorite. This is the best. And in fact, you're so good and you study the Bible so much that you look at me and you're like, there's probably nothing this guy can teach me that I don't already know. And if that's you, I don't blame you. And there probably are a few people like that in this room where like you, like, you get how to study the Bible and you love reading the scripture and it's a joy and a pleasure and, and you love it and you do it every day. And on the other hand of the spectrum, we have people that maybe you have a problem with the Bible. You're on the totally other end of the spectrum where you're like, yeah, I, don't, I, fund, I disagree with the Bible. I don't think it's correct. I don't like the teachings. I don't like the series. I, not only do I not like the Bible, I disagree with the teachings. So again, we have these two spectrums, but I imagine that most people in this room probably fall somewhere in between those two. You don't love reading the Bible. You don't read it every day. You don't like own all the commentaries, but you don't really have a problem with it either. It's like pretty good stuff. For the most part, when you read the Bible, it's a good time, and, and you're not mad that you read it. Um, you don't feel like you wasted your time. 
but you don't read it every day. And you don't know that you find joy or you don't get excited to read it. And you're kind of like in the middle. You don't love reading the Bible, but you don't really have a problem with it either. And if you fall in that category, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm assuming when I say this, that maybe a lot of people in this room or in our online audience can probably relate to being somewhere in the middle. Where again, you don't love reading scripture and you don't do it all the time, but you also don't really have a problem with it. Chances are you probably have one or more of these three hangups when it comes to studying the Bible. A, you find it boring. It's not particularly entertaining. It's not the most exciting read. It's not the most riveting tale. It's just a little, it's just a little bit bland. Or B, you find it confusing. It's difficult to understand. The last time you opened the Bible and you tried to do a devotional, you read a passage, you had no idea what it was talking about. There were really long names. There's a lot of characters. You didn't know who they were. It felt like you were plopped in the middle of a story or a speech or a sermon. You couldn't really tell what it was about. You closed the book and you're like, I have no idea what I just read. I probably won't do that again. Or three, you find it to be pretty irrelevant. This book was written from the perspective of people in a different continent thousands and thousands of years ago. You're not a miracle worker. You're not a slave in Egypt. You're not, you, don't, you don't relate to any of the problems these people have because they grew up in a time before socks and cars. And the problems you have in your life and the situations in your life, the lifestyle you have, is just too fundamentally different from these people that lived in the ancient Middle Eastern um, society thousands and thousands of years ago. And again, I imagine that most people um, probably feel somewhere in between, somewhere in that range of like, yes, I relate to one or more of those sentences. And if you feel that way, you probably have a pretty interesting relationship or very minimal relationship with Scripture. And I'm, I imagine that, and I find myself that a lot of times in my life, I could agree with this as well, you have, your relationship with Scripture is somewhere in between like a fortune cookie and like a customer service hotline where like you have the Bible app on your phone because you feel like, yes, as a Christian, I should have the Bible app on my phone. But you don't particularly read it, but you do get like that verse of the day every day. And every time you read it and it pops up on the top of your phone, you kind of like smile and shrug. Like, yeah, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. It's pretty good. And you swipe up and you get rid of it. And that is like your little daily dose of like, ooh, that's a nice saying for the day. Or on the other side, your interaction with the Bible is only when you really, like, you feel absolutely desperately lost. And you feel like, I need some help. I need some wisdom. I need some peace to get through this portion of my life. What can the Bible teach me? And maybe you've done this before. And I'll be the first to say, I've definitely done this before, where I have a problem in my life. Or I have a question. And I just go. And, like, this verse better change my life. Right? You do that and you flip this Bible and you're like, you pray. God, speak, speak to me, please. And you just, Boom. And then you read whatever that is, and that verse has to change your life. Because for you, that's how the Bible works. It's like a customer service hotline. You bring your problems to the Bible, and the word of God should speak to you. And if that verse does not change your life, then it must not have worked. God must not care. Or this Bible must be irrelevant. And again, I feel like the problem with if, you, if, you, if your interaction with the Bible gets boiled down to the fortune cookie or a customer service hotline, again, you're setting yourself to be to the setbacks of those three, the three main setbacks that people have. Again, if, you're, if your main communication with the Word of God is just a fortune cookie, it boils the Word of God, it boils the Bible down to just a book of nice, inspirational quotes that are like shrug-worthy, and they're like, they make you feel a little good, but don't really apply to your life. And on the flip side, if your interaction with the Bible just comes down to whenever you need God, whenever you're in trouble and you need help and you're lost, you flip through and you just try to have like, just jump into the middle of Ezekiel and hope that this solves your problem with your stress in your finals, chances are very quickly you'll become disillusioned about what the Bible is. It's not very relevant. It's not very practical. And you fall again into those same three pitfalls. It's boring. It's irrelevant. And it's confusing. 
But again, you can see why it's easy to do so if your main interaction with the Bible is that minimal, and that's all you do with Scripture. Which again, I feel like begs the question then, as we go any, before we go any further into this series, we must then answer the question, what is the Bible? What is Scripture? What is this book, this collection of stories? And again, um, we're going to answer this question, and this will be our working definition for the rest of this series, but I'm going to answer this question in kind of two parts. And the first answer to the question of what the Bible is regards to the origin and nature of the Bible. And the second part of the question, uh, second part of the answer to that question will be in regards to what are the contents? What is the Bible about? And the first answer to the first part of that question is that we believe, and by we, myself and Pastor Chris will be leading this series, that the Bible is the Word of God. It is a collection of writings authored by humans who are divinely inspired by God. What that means is this. This book is a collection um, of the works of many different human authors, but we believe that every single one of those human authors was inspired by the teachings and the thoughts of God, therefore making this book a collection of God's thoughts and God's teachings, i.e. the Word of God. The second part of the answer to that question lies within what is this book about? What are the contents of the Bible about? What is this? I mean, every book has a plot, has a narrative, has characters. What is the plot of this Bible? And for us, the working definition will be in this. The Bible is a collection of writings written by various human authors that tells the story of God's love for humanity. Again, this is very just ground zero at a very basic level. We believe our working definition for this series for our Bible is the Bible is the word of God that tells the story of God's love for humanity. And among that, there are many subsets of answers out of questions, like how do we come to be? Where, what do we do? Well, how should we live our lives now? What did God do? How did God interact with humanity? What is God going to do? And again, it answers all of those questions, but at a fundamental level, our working definition for the series is the Bible is the word of God, the divine word of God, and it tells the story of God's love for humanity. And I realize that there may be some people either in this room or watching in our online audience or if you're listening to our podcast later down the road uh, that may disagree with part or all of the, def- of the definition that I just stated. You may disagree on a certain level of what I just said about what the Bible really is. And you may not agree that the Bible is the word of God or that you may not agree that the Bible tells the story of God's love for humanity. And if that's the case, I'm especially glad that you're here. And if you're watching us online, I'm grateful for your time that you stuck around with us for this worship. Um, but I, in the spirit of transparency, I do want to say that if you have a problem with things like biblical inerrancy, with the historical accuracy of the Bible, or the origins of the Bible, again, I want to say we're grateful you're here. And, and I think I speak for both myself and Pastor Chris when I say we crafted this series with people that may have that issue in mind. But I will say... Um, this series is not really looking to debate and argue with those points. With that being said, if you disagree and if you have problems with biblical inerrancy or the origins of the Bible, um, we're not really going to be making points and arguments that try to convince you otherwise. Again, in the spirit of transparency, that's not what we're really trying to do. And, we're really, and this series is really working under the assumption that you agree with our definition of what the Bible is. And we feel like those conversations, if you want to have that with us, we'd be more than happy to have that. I'm in a private setting, I'm in a one-on-one setting. But again, our working definition for the Bible, for this series, and even if you have those hang-ups, we hope that you'll get something out of this and at least gain a better understanding of who God is. But our definition of the Bible is, it is the word of God that tells the story of God's love for humanity. Now, like I mentioned earlier, it's very possible that, that most of the people in this room are like, yeah, I have no problem with that definition. I agree, word of God, B-A-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I love it, that's good. But that still doesn't change the fact that, like, but I don't love studying the Bible. Like, I'm still a little intimidated. I don't do it very often. And again, it boils down to probably one or more of these three facts. You find it boring. You find it confusing. 
and or you find it irrelevant. There's nothing in this that pertains to my life. And to address these concerns, I want to turn to a section of the Bible that I grew up quite familiar with, but once I dove into the context and the actual passage itself, it really changed the way I viewed the concept of studying the Bible. And again, it's a pretty well-known story, and and if you grew up in the church, it probably won't be a new story for you. But I want to take you through this passage um, as we delve into what it can really look like and how studying the Bible can be a benefit to your life that you may or may not have realized. I invite you to join me in a word of prayer before we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for this opportunity for us to meet together, um, for us to come back safely from Cannon Beach and to meet back here in our church in this building on the Sabbath and worship you. Father, Lord, um, as we go into this message and and to this concept of how to study your word and as we delve into the richness and the wisdom that your book offers us, Father, Lord, I ask you speak through me, Father, and that you use me merely as a tool for your word, Lord, and hide me behind your cross. And Lord, you know who this message is for, Lord. You know that there are people in this room that maybe need to hear this, Father. And I ask that you not let me get in the way or a hardened heart get in the way, Lord. You open our hearts, you soften our hearts, you open our eyes, you open our ears to your word on this day. Praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. And the passage I want to turn to is in, found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, it won't be on, on the screen, but if you have it on your phones or in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it's a pretty famous, or would I say infamous story in the Bible. And it's probably best known um, by its title, David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. And again, um, if you grew up in church, it's probably a fairly familiar story for you. But I want to set some context for the story first. Before we get into, again, most of us probably know how the story goes, but before we get into the actual passage, a little bit of context. So if you were here two weeks ago, uh, we had our Rock Springs musical where we talked about the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath happens in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and this story takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In both stories, David is kind of the main character, but I kind of want to take you from David and Goliath, what happened right on this stage a few weeks ago, up until where we are today, which is about... 25 chapters ago. So in the span of 25 chapters, a quick spark note context of where, how we got to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So after David and Goliath, um, David defeats Goliath and the Philistines get routed and it's like an amazing victory. And after that, David becomes easily the biggest name in Israel. And he's just a household name, reaches like the height of like celebrity stardom in Israel. Everyone knew who he was. He's this child prodigy that destroyed the giant. He's so brave. Saul makes him a commander of the army and he's just, he's killing it in life. Right? He's leading the army. His troops love him. His fellow officers love him. The people love him. And it gets to the point where Saul is like, maybe you love him a little too much. And he gets jealous of David's uh, popularity, and he decides or he tries to kill David. Um, luckily, David is able to escape through the help of Saul's son, Jonathan, and he hides in the wilderness for many, many, many years. And at the end of uh, 1 Samuel, um, Saul dies. The current king of Israel dies. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, David is anointed as a new king of Israel. And in doing so, he's able to unite all the tribes. And his first real thing as king, what he does is he conquers the city of Jerusalem, and he names it Zion, and he establishes Jerusalem as this is now the capital of this nation. This is the capital of Jerusalem, will now be the capital of this, of this nation. And he wants to make it not only a, a political capital, because once he's done that, he's, you know, he made his temple there. This is like the hub of all of Israel. He also wants to make it the religious capital, right? How can we, and how do we do that? We need to bring the Ark of the Covenant here, and we need to build a temple. I should, now that I have a house for myself, I should build a house for God. And as he's about to do that, God intervenes and says, thank you, 
but no thank you. I don't want you to build my temple. That, I have future plans for that. Don't worry about that. And very importantly, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, just a few chapters before David and Bathsheba, um, God makes a covenant, and we'll go into a little bit more what that means later in this series, essentially a promise with David. And this is what he tells David kind of watered down. He basically tells David, David, I'm going to bless you, and through your line, through your descendants, there will come a future king, and this future king will establish my kingdom and my temple here on earth for generations to come. And again, this promise that down the road, David, through you, through your sons, and through your daughters, down the road, someone from your lineage will establish my temple and my kingdom here on earth. And there's this enormous, like, this spirit of blessing, and God blesses David through this. And right after that, David goes and wins a bunch more battles. And again, right before we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you need to understand the context of David's life has very much been up and to the right, where everything is going well for him. He's been blessed by God. He's a new king of Israel. Everything is going well. He cannot lose. He cannot miss. Life is going absolutely perfect. And then this is where we get 2 Samuel chapter 11. Again, very important to understand the concept and the trajectory of, God, of David's life. David and Goliath, he's huge, he's a celebrity, and then he hits rock bottom because he's a fugitive. Saul wants to kill him, and eventually Saul dies, and David becomes king, and everything just seems to be going right for David up until this point in his life, to the point where God makes a promise with him and says, I will bless your family, and through your family, a future king will come that will establish my kingdom in my temple here on earth. And if you know the Bible, the spoiler is that eventually Jesus, the Messiah, will come through the line of David. And again, very important to establish that this is the context for the infamous story of David and Bathsheba. He's been blessed by God. Everything is going well. And then we get this. The story of David and Bathsheba begins with this Verse. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And right off the bat, the author establishes like kind of a, an uneasy feeling, like David should not be here. To use a modern idiom, David is kind of wrong place, wrong time right now. Where David should be is he should be out in war. He should be fighting. He should be with his men but he's staying back. Traditionally, David has been in the field. Traditionally, Saul has been in the field. Traditionally, judges that leave Israel are in the field, leading their, their soldiers and their, and their commanders to victory. They're there for inspiration, but for whatever reason, David is staying back at home in Jerusalem, enjoying the spring weather, while his men, Joab is kind of the, the head commander in his army, are fighting for him, fighting on his behalf, and he's, still, and he's sitting at home. And the story goes on, where late one afternoon, he wakes up from a nap, of all things. So he's in, again, picturing the juxtaposition of his men are out, fighting for him, dying for him, bleeding for him, out in the mud, and he's at home, and he just woke up from his nap. He wakes up from his nap, and he goes to the top of, of his palace, and the interesting thing about Jerusalem geography is that the palace is the, easily the highest building in the city, and kind of overlooks all the other buildings um, in the city. And as he's walking along the top of his palace after an afternoon nap, he sees a woman, as the Bible states, of unusual beauty taking a bath at the top of a roof, which was not a wildly unusual thing to do at the time. And he sees this woman, and he tells his messenger, hey, I saw someone. Don't ask me how, but I saw somebody, and I would like you to figure out who this person is. Their house is right over there. Right? He sends the messenger, the messenger goes down, does some investigation, and comes back. David, we found out who that is, and um, actually, that lady, that's someone you know is, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's all he says. And the implication of that is, just by telling you who his father, who her father is, 
you should know who this woman is. Or her, who her husband is, you should know who this woman is. Uriah the Hittite, that's her husband. Right? And what you don't know, if, if you don't know the context, is at, in David's army, there's a smaller group, like a band of merry men. Right? His elite fighters were called David's mighty men. And among David's mighty men was Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. And so essentially what the messenger is telling David is this. David, I get it. You know, I don't know how you saw this woman, but you saw this woman and you want to figure out who it is. I feel like I know where this is going. I want to let you know this is not a nobody. This is somebody you know. This is someone where I can tell you the name of her husband and you should know who that person is. This is Uriah. You know, you know where Uriah is? He's over there. He's dying for you. That's his wife, O king. Right? That's kind of the implication of what this guy is saying. All he tells them is who this person's husband is and her father, implying that David you know who this is. This is not some nobody. This person is married to one of your mighty men who is currently fighting for you in battle. But of course, this all just goes over David's head, or whether or not it does is, is, is up for debate. But David, whether he doesn't catch on or he doesn't care, most likely doesn't, doesn't care, he says, okay, that's cool. Thank you for that information. Now go get her for me. Right? He says an invitation. Bathsheba comes over to his house, uh, to the palace, and he sleeps with her. And then a few weeks later, the Bible says later, um, she realizes that she's pregnant, and she sends word to David saying, I am pregnant, and my husband is in war, so it's probably your kid, right? And now David's like, okay. Now he gets into, like, scheming mode where he realizes, okay, well, I've messed up, and now there's evidence of, of, of my sin and evidence of what I've done. I've got to do something. And he gets, kind of gets into this defensive mode, and this is what he says. So in verse 5, it says, later when Bathsheba, Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. And in verse 6, this is where the schemes of David begin to start. In verse 6, then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. Basically what he does is this. He sends a message out to the army, out where Joab is kind of like top dog over there, and he tells Joab, hey, send me Uriah. Send him back. And Uriah comes back to, back to Jerusalem, and David kind of masks it under the pretense of like, I just want an update on the war. So he, has, uh, he talks with Uriah. He says, hey, how's it going? Oh, that's good. That's bad. Oh, very, very, very good. Interesting. Hey, you know, it's been a long day for you. You've been here for a really long time. And so he asks Uriah, why don't you go on home and take a rest? Go home and rest um, with your wife, right? She's, uh, go rest with your wife. Here's a gift. Sends him with a gift, right? And again, this, 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 you get this nagging sensation like, oh, he feels very, very guilty, and he's trying to cover up what he's trying to do. And again, in verse 8, then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. And here is where the conflict of the story begins. And here is the first indication where things really stop going the way of David, and he meets some resistance. The very next verse says, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Again, the first big foliage in David's plan. Again, even if Uriah goes home and doesn't actually sleep with his wife, just the fact that he went home covers up all rumors, covers up all suspicion of it being David, and his plan still succeeds. But the one thing Uriah cannot do is not go home. And Uriah does that very thing. He sleeps outside the palace gate with his men. Again, again, the author establishes this is the kind of man Uriah is. And he explains a little bit more later why he did this. But again, very early on, we have this juxtaposition of David, the king of Israel, the top dog in the nation, right? God's chosen anointed one, just scheming and doing dirty things. And we have Uriah, the mighty man, the loyal servant of David, refusing to bow and bend any of his morals. And again, the passage explains a little bit why he didn't go home. The very next verse, verse 10, when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? 
why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Again, he's, he's kind of teasing this idea of like, didn't you want to go home? Like, you know, doesn't it sound nice to go home? You've been sleeping probably on the ground, uncomfortable, you're alert, but you're at home, you're at peace. Enjoy a good night's rest um, back in the comforts of your home. And this is where your, the character of Uriah really, really speaks for itself. And again, I'm just reading just the, the, the next verse right after. Uriah replied, the ark and the army, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab, the commander of the army, and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. And here the author again reveals this is, this is who David is scheming against. This is the righteous man that Uriah is. He's, he's like, you're right. I would love to. You know what? Out there, we're all sleeping out on the open field. We're alert. We can't get a good night's rest. It's uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to go home. But how can I? The presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant is out there. How can I go home and sleep with my wife? My friends, my commander, my comrades, my brothers are out there, and they don't get the same luxury I do. How can I just spit in their face by just going home and sleeping with my wife and, and spending a night in relaxation? I could do no such thing. And that's why I sit out here. And again, you really see, again, just kind of a rock meets a hard place, where you see David and his schemes, and he's realizing this is not going to go down as I planned. And he's realizing he's, reading, he's, he's hitting a lot more conflict um, than he re, many have planned for. So David goes, you know what? Fool me, not, fool me once, that's fine. But you know what? I'm the king. And he's kind of power tripping at this point. He says, let's, let's push a little bit harder. The very next verse, well, stay here today. David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner. So he stayed that day and the next. And David invites him to dinner. And again, you really see like the scheming nature of David and how far he's willing to go to cover this up. David invites him, Uriah, to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Again, Another night in Jerusalem, David gets another crack at him. He invites him to dinner, gets him totally intoxicated and says, all right, go that way, go home. And even then, even in that state, Uriah, his moral compass, his righteousness, his firmness in what is right and wrong prevented him from going home. And again, he sleeps outside the palace with the palace guards and refuses to go home, presumably for the same reasons he stated earlier. The presence of God is out there. My friends, my brothers, my, com my, my comrades are out there. How could I possibly enjoy those comforts back at home? And this is where David truly realizes this is, this is a problem. This is a problem because now this whole visit from Uriah, getting Uriah to come home from the army, has essentially totally been in vain, right? I needed him to go home for at least one night. Even if he didn't sleep with his wife, just go home. Just know, People know that you went home that night and then my problems are gone but he wouldn't even do that. And the question now becomes, right, David is forced with his moral dilemma, what do I do? What do I do? And if you put yourself in David's shoes from his perspective, the panic that he's feeling of, on one hand, I desperately want to cover this up, right? This cannot, this would be a huge scandal. It would really wreck my authority as a king, as a father, as a husband, all that stuff. But on the other hand, it's like, what more can I really do, right? What more can I really do? And David answers that question, in the very next verse, 
Verse 14, so the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. To summarize what just happened, basically, David realizes this guy's not going home. I need to get rid of him some other way. So he does this. He says, Uriah, I want you to go back to Joab. Thank you for the update. And give him this letter. And he has Uriah carry his own death sentence over to Job. Obviously, some sort of sealed message. Job opens it, and the instructions that David gives to Job are this. I want you to get rid of Job, but make it look like an accident. That's essentially what he's saying. Put Job at the very front where you know people are going to die, and then pull back and don't let him know. And he should die. And it should, it should work out very naturally. Again, you can see kind of the, the military tactician David coming out. He's led battles before. He knows how battles go. And he said, I want you to make it look like an accident. Basically, get rid of this guy for me. but Make it look like an accident. And then, and then my problems will go away. So he thinks. The very next verses, then Joab sent a battle report to David. And basically, Joab sends a messenger back to David and says, hey, um, I want you to let King David know about what happened. And the messenger is scared. And the messenger is scared to go back to David because the messenger realizes that was a weird move. Like, why did we just do that? Like, why did we get so close to the wall? Why did Job, uh, why did Uriah and those men have to die? It doesn't really make sense. And the messenger is scared that if he gives that message to David, David is going to be upset. David's a military tactician. He knows how wars and battles are fought. And he's, in his mind, the messenger is like, David is going to realize this was a really dumb thing to do and that we needlessly killed Israelite lives. And so the messenger is scared. I don't want to give this bad news to David. He's going to flip out. And this is how Job reassures the messenger. This is how Job reassures the messenger. He says, then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. When you give him the account, um, in verse 21, it says, then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. What would you tell him what we did? We got really close to the wall, started shooting down on us, a bunch of Israelites died. I want you to finish the report by telling him, by the way, we lost some Israelite lives, and among the lives of those killed in action was Uriah the Hittite. And again, this is supposed to make him feel better. So again, the messenger takes this relatively cryptic message back to the king. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gates, the archers on the wall shot at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Again, bad news. We made a foolish tactical mistake. A bunch of Israelites were lost, including Uriah the Hittite, who I know was one of your mighty men. And this is David's response in verse 25. Well, Tell Job not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. Like, how callous ever. Basically, he says, ah, sucks to suck, huh? Dang. Oh, well, mistakes happen. Lives are lost. Hey, man, thank you for the report. I appreciate your work. Why don't you go back on out there? And when you read the story, you can't help but, like, flinch a little at, like, how stone cold David is in the face of murder. And, like, to add on to what exactly happened, to cover up for the fact that he had adulterous relationships with one of his mighty men's wives. He tried to get him drunk. He tried all that he could. He basically created an an area where he created a hit on somebody. And in doing so, in trying to get rid of Uriah, 
other innocent Israelite soldier lives were lost as well. Because of his greed, because of his pride, because of his, his wanting to cover up his mistake, not only did he kill Uriah, who, by the way, was very, very innocent and had no fault, other Israelites did not come home. Other people's fathers and sons did not come home because of what David tried to do, right? Just to, like, sink in, like, how terrible of a situation this is, right? How, like, inhumane and how cruel what he did, how corrupt what he did truly was to cover up his act of adultery, cheating on someone else's spouse. He tries to trick this person by creating a false narrative that she, he came home, and when that doesn't work, he kills him, gets Job involved, along with many other Israelite innocent soldiers' lives who had no idea what was going on. I mean, talk about like a grocery list of some of the worst things you can do to somebody else. Cheat on them with their wife, try to lie about it, make it seem like their fault, and then kill them along with their friends and comrades, and then get another innocent person like Job involved. Again, when you really paint it, this is probably one of the worst things anyone ever, not just in the Bible, really can really do, especially someone that's supposed to be the anointed king of Israel, God's chosen people um, and chosen by God. And this is how the story ends. This is how um, David uh, and Bathsheba, chap at least chapter 11 ends. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. She's a widow now, so at this point, it's like David's doing her a favor. You're a widow, you're pregnant, let me take care of you, right? Becomes, she becomes one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. And this is the last sentence of 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the scene before the credits. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And I realized this. And that's how Second Samuel chapter, I essentially read pretty much every verse just as it stayed, just as it was said in the Bible, uh, the New Living Translation. Honestly, even in the way that this passage ends, again, all these terrible things happened, and the last sentence, where it seems like David got away with everything, just before the credits roll, is this. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Credits. Right? And you can't deny, and again, for me, this, this was a passage, again, that was talked about very much growing up. And in a lot of ways, the way it was presented to me um, in church was, and again, it wasn't talked about very often, was this is, these are the dangers of lust. Don't lust. It's really bad. Um, and this is why. Because terrible, terrible things happen. People die when you lust. Okay? When you commit adultery or you lust and you give into those desires, look at all these dead people in the story. Okay? Don't do that. And we're just like, okay. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. And that was kind of the narrative. And again, I feel like that's not necessarily false per se, but it really boils down this complex, multi-layered story into just like, okay, children, and the moral of the story is, don't be a bad person, right? If someone is married, that's that person's spouse, not yours, right? And, it, and sure, that's true, and that is a teaching in Scripture, but again, when you study the Bible and you read, again, just one chapter, and again, there's the conclusion of this happens in the next chapter, First Samuel chapter 12, which, again, I would highly recommend you read. I, I think, like, the conclusion of this story is so fascinating in the way that God kind of, like, in a subtle way lets David know, like, I know what you've done, right? I know what you've done, and, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But, again, it really boils down this multi-layered, fascinating, complex story down to one simple moral or one simple do or don't or just one, like, look at this story. But again, when you read this verse by verse and you analyze and you look at the context of David's life before this, and again, I'm going to talk about what happens just after this and David's life um, and the conclusion of David's life, which takes place for the rest of this book in 2 Samuel, you get a much more bigger picture of who David was as a person and kind of 
how human someone like David is. When you read the story of 2 Samuel, you see that David at his peak. You see David at his lowest. You see him go back up again, and you see him drop down again. Just the ups and downs of life. And I will say this. Going back to the three main hang-ups that you may have about studying Scripture, the three main hang-ups that you may have about this series even, that Scripture is boring, that it's confusing, and that it's irrelevant, I realize that 2 Samuel 11 is not representative of every passage in Scripture. I get that. There are other books, and for the most part, you're probably thinking of books like in the Minor Prophets with names you can't pronounce. I get that not every chapter in the Bible is like this, but at the very least, you can't really say that the entire Bible is boring after reading a chapter like this. It's really got all the elements of a great story. There's a good guy that stands by his morals versus a bad guy that will do whatever it takes to win. There's corruption, there's scheming, there's romance, there's war, there's like a love triangle kind of. There's this interesting tension that keeps the story moving. And in so many ways, it's hard to read a chapter like this and then blanket statements say that this whole book is just boring and bland and lacks any sort of real plot line or character development. This is one of the most fascinating stories I've ever read, Bible or not. It's amazing what happens in the story, and there's so much tension, and the plot gets moved forward. And it ends in this amazing cliffhanger, like very Korean drama-esque, right? Where like, and the Lord was displeased. Credits, and it turns black and white. And again, it draws you in a little bit, and makes you want to know, like, how, what is the resolution of this story? And again, I feel like this, again, I feel like this, it's hard to say that after reading a passage like this, that scripture is, is as a whole, is uninteresting or boring. And secondly, to say that scripture is confusing, I feel like that's really a symptom of a bigger issue. And when you say that the scripture is confusing, I feel like it comes from the way we treat the Bible and the way we interact with the Bible. A lot of times, and I definitely can say this for myself, my interaction with the Bible is... And again, a lot of the confusing aspects of Scripture, I would argue, can be resolved by understanding the context of the story that you're reading, including the infamous minor prophets. If you understand who those prophets are speaking to, what they're talking about, and the prophecies that they're referring to, it becomes a lot less confusing. I can't say it becomes entertaining by any means, but it does become a lot less confusing. And again, if that's your main struggle with Scripture, it's too confusing. You read it and you have no idea what's going on. I highly, highly recommend that you join us next week as Pastor Chris um, delivers part two of how to study the Bible. And he'll really give us the tools you need to create context in Scripture. And the last hang-up that you may have, the irrelevance of Scripture. Scripture is it's not relevant in my life. And again, when you read this story, chances are there's a lot of evidence and ammunition for you to fuel that misconception of Scripture. It's, I'm not a king. I've never ordered a hit on anybody. I've never... Uh, committed adultery, cheated on my wife. I've never had multiple wives even. I've never commanded an army. My house isn't that tall. I've never taken a bath outside. There are so many things in the story where you may say, like, I don't relate to this. And to be fair, none of those, most of those things are probably true. Most of those things are things 
you've probably never done. And, to be, and the reality is you're not a king. And some of you may be the rulers of your household, um, but David was the king of Israel. And even though Israel was like kind of a theocracy at this point, David had the checks and balances of essentially like a modern day dictator. He could do essentially whatever he wanted. And most of us, sure, we cannot relate to that. We don't have that level of authority, of power, um, and, and autonomy to do whatever we want. And most of us probably haven't gone that far with our autonomy. We order hits on people and we can command entire armies um, with just a letter. But chances are, even if you cannot relate to those, you can probably relate to the idea of wanting to cover up something that you've done with a bigger lie. In fact, I would argue most of the reason you or your children lie is to cover up something that they know they're going to get in trouble for. I know growing up, that was like my main tool. I mean, I try not to use it very often, but the reality is this. If I was a kid and I was lying to a parent or an authority figure, it was so that I could try to prevent myself from getting punished. And sure, usually it didn't work, but I feel like that idea of what David was doing, and he may have taken it way further than any of us ever would. But to say that we can't relate to that concept I feel like we're being a little dishonest. To maybe say that you've never really struggled with the idea of lust or envying or wanting something that isn't yours, most of us can probably relate to those concepts. Again, the idea of being unfaithful to God, even when David is currently at the peak of his life. Everything is going well. He just had a covenant with God. He's winning battle after battle. At the peak of his life, when everything is going well, he forgets his relationship with God and falls into his lowest moments. I know I for sure, I for one can relate to every single one of these struggles that David has. The idea, especially the idea that David really reveals the shortcomings of humanity despite the fact that he had a relationship with God and despite the fact that his life was going well. Everything was going well for him. Everything was a check. His life was going up and to the right. And despite life going so well, he makes the biggest mistake of his life, which brings us to the consequences of his actions. And again, I won't read 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is the direct um, kind of like the epilogue of the story. But it's a very fascinating and kind of interesting, almost amusing way that God reveals this message to David. But after this, um, David's life is really never the same. And if you look at the story of David's life, almost like a, like a curve or like a hill, everything's up and to the right and David and Bathsheba happens and everything after that is essentially downhill. His family falls apart. One of his, again, he has, you know, multiple wives and concubines. One of his sons, um, sexually harasses one of his other daughters. And because of that, another one of his sons kills that son because of that. Later on down the road, that same son that killed one of David's other brothers um, declares, essentially stages a coup against David. And that coup only ends when David's army has to kill one of David's sons. And at the end of David's life, he looks back on all that has happened, essentially between the end of his reign and Bathsheba. And he's essentially like just a shell of himself. And it's really, really, really sad to see that this boy that slayed this giant Philistine and in the name of courage and, and relying completely on God at the end of his life looks back on the decisions that he's made. And really, I, I imagine, I can't imagine the amount of regret he had for that one decision, for taking Uriah's wife, um, taking his life and going on to really bring on the demise of his reign and of his family as well. And as much as we can relate to David, and as much as really the essence of the story of David um, really brings me hope in that this. Despite David's choice 
I think it, it, it's a lot of truth comes from how he, how he copes with the consequences of his actions. And if you read, there's no indication that God bails him out from any of this. There's no God, he prays to God and God waves his hand and says, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You're a pretty good person. Let me just fix your whole life for you. None of that happens. David fully takes on the full brunt of the consequences of his decisions and his family and his reign all fall apart. And you can see it happen um, throughout the rest of the, the book of 2 Samuel. Yet, Despite this decision that he made with David and Bathsheba, despite his life falling apart, despite the fact that he carries that burden for the rest of his life, his legacy is this. David dies, and after this, he's referred to in the rest of the Bible as someone, as an icon of someone that understood the heart of God. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, despite the story I just read to you, and despite what I told you how his life ends. He's looked back on and remembered in Israelite history for the rest of the Bible as an amazing king and someone that truly understood what the heart of God was like. And what David realizes is this, as we sang in the song, Goodness of God, that despite all the terrible things that were happening in his life, all the tragedies, a lot of which were brought by him, by his own hands, he understood that God never left his side and the grace of God was sufficient to forgive him, but not to take away all of his problems. There's no point where David cries out and says, God, what the heck? How come, you're not fixing, how come you're not fixing all the consequences of all the mistakes that I made? He understands that his relationship with God is not created on the consequences and, and the ease of his life. And as much as we can relate to David, and as much as we can relate to any of the thousands of stories found in the Bible about the shortcomings of humanity, the driving force in the story of the Bible does not waver. And it's founded in the promise that God made to David, that through the lineage of David, again, the promise that God makes to David just before he commits this terrible atrocity, um, that God makes the promise to David that through the lineage of David the shepherd would eventually come a boy born in the town of Bethlehem that would become a living manifestation of God's love for humanity. That is a driving force of the entire scripture. And that no matter what, no matter how many stories there are in the Bible about human beings losing against the struggle with sin, God's plan, God's promise never changes. That in his love for us, he would bear the consequence of our sins and offer us the undeserved gift of life in him. That is what the Bible is about. And that's why studying the Bible can reveal that truth to you. And again, if any part of that last sentence, any part of the story of David and Bathsheba, any part of the claims that I've made of what the Bible can offer you in your life was appealing to you or something you needed to hear, or at the very least, something you're curious about knowing more of, I invite you to join us next week for part two of how to study the Bible as we go into the context of what the book is all about and how this book can offer a blessing and change in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, truly, this, this, this story of David and Bathsheba, as, as terrible and uh, as dramatic as it is, Father, we, we understand that at the end of the day, it paints a picture of who you are, Father, that all of David's life, you were faithful to him, God, in the ups and the downs. When David brought the tragedies upon himself, Father, you stood by his side and you walked with him through the ups and downs of his life, Father. And Lord, Yes, this is a story that happened thousands and thousands of years ago uh, to someone in a different continent, in a totally different culture. Yet, somehow we can still relate to the struggles that David had, the struggle against sin, the struggle against consequences and wanting to cover up, the struggle against pride and ego um, and, and fighting against our desires, Father. And Lord, I ask that as we continue on this series, Lord, and if, if there's anyone in this room currently that's at the very least curious about what this book is about and what this book can offer them, Lord, you speak to them throughout this week, Father, and as 
as this series continues on, Lord, that you can reveal your love for us through this book and that through this book, you can help us realize that your plans for us are many and that your love for us is deeper than we could ever possibly imagine, Lord. We thank you for this book and what it offers into our lives and what your love has done for us and what it promises to. I praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.